Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like US coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there, Choose your content, and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Cornwall Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We've got a great show for you today, as always. We were lucky enough to speak with Don Everhart, a U.S. Mint Artistic Infusion Program artist who has designed a number of U.S. coins, in addition to doing some work for World Mints. On top of that, we're going to be discussing briefly coin roll hunting, and we review an issue of CoinWorld from 2003. So if you are enjoying these episodes, we implore you, we beg you, please subscribe and tell all your friends and family and let everyone know where you get your numismatic insights and updates every week here on the Coin World Podcast. Spread the good word, as it were. Uh, so we're going to start off talking about coin roll hunting because I, I received an email from a listener, which we're going to read part of in a second, that... Not only did I just enjoy getting an email, I love Jeff and I both love getting emails from listeners. I think I might have said reader just there, but you know, (laughs) those words uh, sometimes come out interchangeably, even though they're obviously quite different. I received an email from uh, Robert Parrish. Uh, He wrote to me to tell us, "Uh, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast since I found it in January 2020. I happen to work in a mine where podcasts are the only media available to me. And since my shift is normally 12 hours, I get a good bit of listening time. I may have an idea for a podcast if you find it acceptable. Last year, I discovered coin roll hunting via YouTube. I never thought a coin could be worth so much money. I've wanted to ask about this for some time, and your comments, along with the comments of your guests on episode 58, prompted me to make this request. The comments were, you're not going to find something in circulation that has value, so the treasure hunt aspect is gone. That statement is obviously not accurate, and it is actually because I was looking for treasure that I found and really enjoy your podcast. He said some other stuff, but for the sake of um, for the sake of brevity, I'm going to leave it at that. So first of all, thank you, Robert. Also, apparently, if your uh, email address is anything to judge it off of, you drive a Subaru, which automatically endears you to me because as Jeff knows, I also drive a Subaru. So uh, but no, we we love getting these these letters and corner hunting is a really interesting and accessible way for people to enjoy the hobby not only without spending a tremendous amount of money, but also to enjoy the treasure hunt aspect, as, as he alludes to. So I'm sure I think I'm sure we've mentioned coin roll hunting on the podcast before. But for those listeners who might not have listened to our, uh, many of our previous episodes where we might have mentioned it, honestly, off the top of my head, I can't think of which episodes nah. would even have included a discussion of that. So I'm sure a keen-eared listener might be able to tell us when we've talked about it because because uh, Lord knows we can't remember. But coin roll hunting is essentially a practice that some coin collectors employ where they go to banks or other financial institutions and they change in cash for rolls of coins, coin roll hunting, and then they hunt through the rolls to try to find interesting coins that might have been taken out of circulation by one of these financial institutions and put aside. And so, you know, you might get a a 50 cent roll of pennies or, uh, 
$20 roll of quarters. I'm just trying to think of the $10 roll of quarters, 10, $10 roll of quarters. I'm trying to think of the denominations. We have coin rolls of different denominations in my house. So I'm trying to think of what those are. So you got uh, 50 cents for the pennies or the cents. You have $2 for the nickels, $5 for the dimes, $10 for the quarters. That's what it is. Yeah. The $20 quarter roll would be quite long and very heavy. Very, very infrequently you'll find $10 rolls of half dollars, but yeah. um, yeah. So, and, and then $25 for a dollar coin, but my gosh, when, you know, when was the last time you, you saw a dollar coin out there? Well, I mean, I actually, dollar coins, I come across them sometimes from vending machines. Some vending machines will give out presidential or Sacagawea dollars, or I yeah. guess Native American dollars now, but they, they still feature the, the Sacagawea objects. Yes, yes. But I've gotten Susan B. Anthony dollars in the last decade i've gotten susan b anthony dollars oh, from change yeah. machines yeah, for, for, from you know vending machines or whatever if, very, I, if you put in a five and very infrequently get, I, though you don't, yeah i mean yeah. like you don't you, you don't see him in in cashier's tills very often that much is is true so i mean coin roll hunting as sort of a practice or as an activity is not something i've really done a lot of i know that you know my family has historically rolled change you know if you have a giant bin full of you know god knows how many how many coins and you want to organize them in a way that you know roughly how much money you have or you want to go into the bank and exchange it for cash i've dug through coin rolls that have been rolled by my own family i don't think i've ever gone into a bank and bought a roll to just to hunt through but that's something that i i think i probably will start We'll start doing even just as something fun to do if I just want to kill an hour or something, just, you know, go down to the bank, pick up a certain number of, of rolls of coins and go through them. Because as Robert alludes to, you can find some really interesting stuff. And of course, you could you could have a parallel conversation about interesting pieces that you find in change as well. I mean, you know, one of the things that really sort of wet my interest in coin collecting as as a much younger person was finding a 1925 Buffalo nickel in change, for example. So the conversation about hunting through change and hunting through rolls, they run roughly parallel, though roll hunting is obviously a much more involved and in some ways more specific pursuit because you're not only selecting by denomination, but you're opting intentionally to get change instead of just incidentally getting change as part of a regular transaction. Yeah, and I would think the happenstance that exists in the one scenario where you're just whatever change you come across is diminished right now because, you know, so many people just use card for for payments. But coin roll hunting against this current backdrop is really difficult because at least here in uh, Sydney, Ohio, home to uh, coin world, our banks, you have to make an appointment to go in. I don't think they've opened the lobbies up yet. And they're generally not. You can't get coin rolls through the pneumatic tubes. That's actually, there's a a larger thing going on that our colleague Paul Jokes just reported on a shortage of coins in the country because these usual outlets for redeeming them, they're not open as much. People aren't transacting as much. They're transacting with digital payments. So it's a really interesting time. I'm not sure what the Massachusetts regulations for banks are, but I haven't handled cash in a transaction in like four months or so now, maybe yeah. however long the lockdowns have been going, basically since late February. I don't think I've engaged in an in-person transaction of any kind, except for, you know, picking up takeout food occasionally. I just, and and even then, you know, usually I pay over the phone for takeout. So 
So right now, as you alluded to, Jeff, the sort of the happenstance nature of finding coins and in individual transactions, that's not really doable right now because of COVID. I mean, COVID's radically changed so much of, of the world and of the coin hobby, which has been reported on extensively in Coin World and other hobby publications. But I mean, coin roll hunting as a practice, I mean, I guess if you can't go into the bank, if you have to make appointments at the bank and if they've restricted it so much, I don't actually, I don't know to what extent coin rolls would even be available right now. That was why I wanted to mention it, though. I wanted to at least hearken back to my experience with coin roll hunting because there, mm. the world will open back up again and there will be a time when we can do the things we're used to doing to some degree. You know, 25 years ago, as a 23 years ago, maybe somewhere around there in the mid to late 90s, I was a coin world subscriber and I was reading Bill O'Rourke's column about found and rolls found and rolls is the name mm-hmm. and i thought okay you know here's this guy that he's sharing all these stories about the cool things he finds doing coin roll hunting so i wanted to go and start that and i did it with half dollars now you know you're talking 95 to 98 somewhere in there maybe 99 so the last silver 40% silver halves, it had been at most 30 years since they were in circulation, whereas now that's more than 50 years old. But, you know, even then, I searched through several thousand dollars over the course of a couple months and found almost nothing. It was heartbreaking as a young yeah. kid. You read these stories and you go, okay, so there's stuff out there. And my dad, we, you know, he took me all over. We were going to a bunch of banks and, you know, so many of them wouldn't hardly give you the time of day. And it was rather difficult. Now, interestingly, I did have somebody at my, the usual bank that I went to, who alerted me when a bunch of war nickels, World War II silver nickels came oh, in. Oh, that's cool. And I was able to buy like 16 rolls of the war nickels, $2 a roll at face value. And they, wow. of course, yeah, of course they were all worth much more than that. I, I think at the time I sold them on eBay for like 10 to $12 a roll. And, Dang, um, tidy little profit for yeah, you. Yeah, it, it was a nice little reward for a, a high schooler at the time. Yeah, I do think a great reward for, for a high schooler. That's something that, looking back on it, I wish that I'd done. Though I imagine that even coin roll hunting in the 90s, I imagine, would even be... Obviously, you can conceptualize rewarding in different ways, but I think it would be... You might get better results even in the 90s because you would have more maybe, you know, 90% silver material or 40% silver half dollars or more wheat cents or an occasional Indian cent. I mean, obviously with the volume of coins and change that exist out there, there are still fun and interesting pieces to be found. And moreover, do you think you, you could also, if, if someone just wanted to do, let's say a Lincoln cent set, right? And they were willing to compromise a little bit on quality and they wanted to do, you know, Dayton mints from 1909 to present, you know, you could do a lot of the memorial reverse sense, again, if you're willing to, to compromise and have coins that have circulated lightly to, in some cases, a little more than lightly. If you're willing to compromise on quality, you could fill a good chunk of the sort of memorial reverse folder. 1959 to 2009, 2009 being the beginning of the, the four different reverses for the four stages of Lincoln's life, the Lincoln bicentennial sense. 
you could do a lot of those albums out of just going through coin rolls. I mean, you might not be able to do all of them. You might have to hunt out specific dates and you, you might get a really crappy looking one and then you might have to change it out, but you could do a chunk of it. There are folks who do that, but Robert's comment about finding something of value really struck out to me because the things that are valuable, and, and let's be honest, a lot of the YouTube videos are, um, they're, they're trying- like they're, they're trying to get clicks. They're trying to get people to watch because of the ad revenue. Um, things are out there, but generally they are so tough to find. What are we talking about? I think we're talking about the wide AM, close AM type stuff uh, on, some yeah. of the, on some of the 90s Lincoln cents. But for those to have the astronomical value that some of those have, uh, have achieved, they have to be you know, basically uncirculated. You have to get them graded. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of detail that you really have to know and be hyper attuned to. But when I was in high school and college, I was a cashier, first at Sears Hardware, then at Walgreens, and I got to look through all sorts of change that came through. And then, you know, you could find a decent number of wheat cents, not a lot, but still, you know, maybe 20 10 a month. I don't, you know, I, I kept track, I think at the time, a a certain number now, you know, there it's so, so uncommon, at least in, in the change that I get. And I use cash a lot. Uh, not all. And they're almost invariably, they're almost invariably really common dates from the late forties or the, and and through the 1950s. When I was a cashier, I found 1919, 1911, 1920s. I found two Indian head cents, a 1904 and 1899. Yeah. That's, Um, that's pretty Cool. I guess for me, the earliest would for Lincoln sense would be either 1919 or 1929, somewhere in that in that range. Your point about how some YouTube videos and some content that implies that someone can find a $10,000, you know, a coin worth 10 grand or something in their change. I can't remember when this was. It was sometime in the aughts or the early teens. I saw a book advertised. It might have been advertised in Coin World, but it might have been advertised somewhere else. So I don't want to say the Coin World ran the ad, but it's possible I saw it there. A book like, you know, find the $10,000 cent in your change, or I'm sure it said penny because it was for a broad audience. Well, one of the books out there is Strike It Rich with Pocket Change, right? And Yeah, I can't remember the title of the book that I saw advertised. And your point, though, just to really quickly uh, just wrap up my thought there, is the odds of finding something really valuable in, in, in terms of market value is a good one. Like the the amount of specialization that you have to have to be able to identify valuable material and the odds of that valuable material actually showing up in any given number of coin rolls is pretty low. That's an important point. But that's why I said that you can conceptualize value in different ways. I mean, if value well, for someone is purely dollars and cents, yeah, you're you're not going to necessarily strike it rich with pocket change to borrow the title of that book, but if you conceive value in a set of, again, I'll return to the Lincoln Memorial Cent example. You know, if you build a set of those things and you're just proud to have all of them, and if you enjoyed the process of finding all of the dates, I would argue that that is valuable. It might not have a market value, but it does have a certain sort of intellectual or emotional payoff, which I, I think that that's legitimate. I, I mean, you can't bring that to the bank, but... Well, you can take it to the bank if you want to turn <laughs> it in, but but no, you're absolutely <laughs> you right. You want to take it in for like a buck. <laughs> yeah, but that speaks to why people engage in hobbies. You know, yes, the great thing about numismatics is it's always worth something. You can go broke buying coins and still 
have money, but <laughs> probably less than you started with. But well, but you know, I mean, in terms I mean, of face it, value, to be clear. yes, but it's a father and uh, his son or daughter, and they're lo- sitting at the table looking, and you know, oh, hey, this one's better than that one, and it's the time invested, the the yeah. experience of it. It's like you know, people that go to fish, yes, they hope to catch a fish, but what's the saying? A, a bad day fishing is better than a good day at the office. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So you know, it's the experience, it's the doing that matters and that provides value in the entertainment and relaxation sense. Everybody can participate in the hobby at some level. And, you know, there's only a handful of folks that can be in it at the big level. And that's okay. You know, I'm going to talk about 1913 nickels later. There's only five of them and one or two of them are in museums, right? So not many people are ever going to get to own one of those, but anyone can take the time to look through the rolls and put together some nice sets. That's what the uh, Shelby County Coin Club did several years ago, a couple different years in a row, put together sets and um, had them as prizes or something for the annual coin show. So it's fun. The hobby is supposed to be fun. What you just alluded to was the last thing that I I wanted to quickly say is that there is a, a focus, and it's an understandable one, on high dollar material and big ticket auctions where people are spending tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars in some cases, you know, putting together exceptional sets of the most beautiful, the rarest, the most extraordinary material. And I mean, of course, that's valuable, right? As far as preserving artifacts, as far as keeping the story of a lot of these extraordinary pieces alive, those are all, it's all valuable to some extent, right? But I do think that especially in an age where, you know, the middle class has shrunk a lot, wages are stagnant, all of the sort of economic problems that we face as a nation, focusing on cheaper material, I've been beating this drum for a long time. And I know a lot of, I know some people, you know, certainly agree with me, you and I have talked about this on and off the podcast to some extent, but Focusing in on the intangible benefits of collecting, the intangible benefits of having a hobby is really important. And, you know, not only can it provide a lot of pleasure, but you don't have to spend a lot of money to, in my opinion, be a numismatist. I think that, you know, there are different levels to it. There are different price points. But I think that if someone is interested in learning more about the money that they handle and the money that has circulated historically and the stories that undergird it and trying to connect those stories to other aspects of life, that person is a numismatist to me, and Absolutely. I don't think it's restricted to a dollar figure. And and that's why I really appreciated Robert. This is, this is a, a long discussion, but that's why I appreciated your email. And so thanks for sending it. Thanks for putting coin roll hunting sort of back onto our radar as a topic to discuss. And we'll revisit it at some point. I mean, I, I think that especially if Jeff or I ever uh, really delve back into it and find something cool, we'll do that. But the last thing I'll say too to Robert and to anyone else who's interested in coin roll hunting This is also a shameless plug for the magazine, so I apologize for that. But the found in the rolls column is, first of all, interesting. I've read a number of O'Rourke's pieces and I enjoy reading them and I find the column interesting. So anyone who's in corner hunting might consider, you know, getting a subscription to Coin World and seeking out those columns. Uh, On that note, Jeff, we're we're talking about, you know, change that people have used historically. What was happening this week in numismatic history? So this is going to be a callback to the last episode, sort of, because it was on June 28th, 1935, 
in the Depression that President Franklin Roosevelt ordered the construction of the Gold Vault at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And uh, our mm. our interview with Michael O'Malley, author of Face Value, he referenced how the construction of Fort Knox was really a, a political maneuver amid this- It was uh, political theater, I think theater, is how he described yes, it. Political theater. You're right. So as the, uh, the gold was confiscated just a year or two before. Now, if we want to talk about something that directly relates to collecting, then let's go to June 24th, 1967. That was when Congress restored the mint marks to coinage, which had last been used on 1964 coinage. For those who've followed the hobby, they know that 1964 coinage, oh my gosh, the mintage figures are enormous. The growing nation needed a lot of coinage. You were seeing the baby boom after the war. These people were maturing into adults. All that economic activity was driving demand for coins. And the mint decided, hey, collectors are pulling too many of these out of circulation for the mint marks. So we're going to take the mint marks off. After the situation calmed and mints ramped up production, and there was just a massive outpouring of 1964 dates, they produced them into 1965 or 66 in some cases, I believe. So when I was a cashier, I just talked about being a cashier. 1964 nickels are so freaking common. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I just remember seeing those all the time. That was because there was just this massive demand. So in uh, 1967, June 24th, this week, Congress said, hey, you can have mint marks back on coins. And that, that matters for collectors, especially those who are putting together the um, – the little sets. And Jeff, I mean, as you allude to, the nation's coinage was changing quite a bit through the 1960s. And something that I get a real kick out of just as a, we can discuss this on a future episode, and I'm sure we can delve into more detail because CoinWorld did, I believe there's a cover feature a, a year or two ago about this, this topic, at least in the last few years, that I found particularly interesting because it was actually something that as a collector, I didn't know. So in 1964, they removed silver from circulating coinage. So the dime, quarter, and half dollar, which had been 90% silver, the half dollar would go down to 40% silver clad, and that would remain until 1970. And then the silver would be removed entirely from the quarter and the dime. But what was really interesting to me is that they actually continued to strike silver coinage into 1965 and 1966. We might even have talked about this on the podcast, but whatever, I think it's interesting. And they backdated it with 1964, partially to prevent hoarding, which I, I just get such a kick out of that. I think it's really interesting that they were striking 1964 dated coinage in 1965 and 1966. I just think that's super interesting. Yeah, it's crazy. So now that we've looked at the general history, I want to go to this week in coin world history. And we went, we're going, we're looking at the June 23rd, 2003 issue. And the thing that jumped out to me, especially Especially in hindsight, it was on the front page, but it wasn't the top story. But to me, it's it's the most important thing in here. And it also relates a little bit to my backstory. So June 23rd, 2003 issue, the headline reads, Reunion Set for Four 1913 Liberty Five Cent Coins. The fabled coins to be on view at ANA convention in Baltimore. Now, the 1913 nickel is, as the headline notes, fabled. It's uh, There's only five known. And at the time, one of them was missing. And this issue was just 
I think a week or two after Bowers and Morena, and um, there may have been somebody else involved, issued a call for trying to find the missing nickel. And they offered a reward for whoever came up with, turned in the missing 1913 nickel. As it turns out, the Walton nickel, the one that was missing, was found in the Walton family estate. And it and the family ended up coming to Baltimore And uh, that's where experts reviewed the example, declared it genuine, and later all of them would be on display. Not that show, I don't think. But that was interesting because just a week or two later, after this issue was published, is when I started at CoinWorld as an intern. And I went to that ANA Baltimore convention. That was my first Big coin show. I'd only been to one other coin show in my life back in St. Louis, the February show, St. Louis Airport. That was just a neat experience as a, a dumb kid, basically, barely, you know, 25, barely out of college. So, you know, 1913 nickel, that's uh, that's a big story. And, and that's what jumped out to me in hindsight, because the fact that the fifth one showed up, Coin World editor Beth Deicher, who uh, we've interviewed, was instrumental in getting that fifth one found and the family to show up to Baltimore. So that resonates 17 years later. What about you, Chris? What were the readers talking about? We talk a lot about how these letters reflect, in many cases, similar concerns, right? That same issues keep surfacing over and over again. But this one, this was another perennial issue, though not one that we've really touched on on the podcast. So I thought that I would take the opportunity to share what some readers were thinking about. So as a quick little bit of background, CoinWorld had apparently in, in the early aughts, I was not a subscriber at the time, so I wouldn't have consumed much or any of the content relating to this, though obviously for research purposes, Jeff and I delve into the CoinWorld archives all the time. Apparently CoinWorld had as a sort of test of the grading companies, the third party grading companies, Numismatic Guarantee Corporation, Professional Coin Grading Service, etc., had taken a bunch of coins and submitted them to the grading service, you, you know, and people on the staff had evidently looked at them. Jeff, you might have been there for this, so you might be able to shed some light on this. But I do remember reading about the, I don't want to say fallout, but the residual impact because CoinWorld did a, like a, I think a double blind, certainly a blind test where they submitted the same coins over the course. Of, and this took like a couple years for them to yeah. submit, wait for them to come back and they'd submit to different ones and And they tracked what all the different grading services assessed the same coin over this time period and compared them and reflected, you know, these items were graded at, they had a a grade on them to begin with. And so these ones matched up with the grade that was given from the outset. These were under, these were over. It was a very important thing for the hobby because, you know, grading is is the perennial topic. It was a way to really assess that snapshot in time where things were falling in, in the grading map. I can absolutely see the value in that kind of reporting and in that kind of exercise because, you know, different grading companies do have different standards to some extent. And the grading companies, I think to say that they're controversial in the space is to understate it quite a bit. The letters sort of reflect a a sort of quasi-populist anger amongst a lot of collectors. One entitled undervaluing, question mark, reads, in studying your article on third-party grading services, I have come to a significant conclusion. 
The two top-rated companies, supposedly, Numismatic Guarantee Corporation of America and Professional Coin Grading Service, are undervaluing graded coins for their clients. This is a real disservice to them as it usually nets lower prices on sales of coins. Of course, dealers rate these two companies higher because it means they can buy a better coin for less money. The most accurate grading seems to be by PCI, Numistrust Organization, Annex, and Sovereign Entities Grading Service, SEGS. For that reason, I will be using these companies to grade my coins and certainly not NGC or PCGS. So now who wrote that? The name is Jim Lawrence and address withheld. So we don't actually know where the letter came from, but Jim Lawrence is the name of the person who, who wrote that in. So they continue another column entitled educate yourself reads. I've been collecting coins for over 35 years. I put it aside for quite some time while in the military and school. After getting back into the hobby, I had to decide if I wanted to buy professionally graded coins. I concluded that it really is the same as before. I look at the coin I'm interested in, decide if it's worthy of its grade and price, and then purchase it if it is. If I were the type of person to buy a coin that is worth thousands more in the next grade, then I would have to study long and hard to decide whether whoever graded that coin did it to expectations. If you bring that same coin to 10 different dealers, you will probably get five or more different opinions on its grade, but it's your opinion that counts in the end. If I'm buying a coin that is new to me, then I have to study the different grades of that particular coin before I even think about a purchase. We have to educate ourselves and not be angry at the grading services. That comes from Mark C. Alfaro of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. And I mean, that to me is is a relatively lengthy way of saying buy the coin, not the holder. But his point and, about and by the collectors educating the themselves. Yes, exactly. So that that's that's a pretty good synthesis of two pieces of advice that we've offered on the podcast and two pieces of advice that pretty much all collectors have absorbed in one way or another throughout their collecting journey. Again, as a referendum on the grading companies, it's interesting to see how, you know, people generally didn't seem particularly happy with the top tier firms. Now, obviously, this is not necessarily a representative snapshot of the entire industry or the entire hobby space, but it is interesting that this was that this was the response. The last letter, this one was a little lighter, at least it, it resonated with me because it involves a relatively famous landmark uh, from my neck of the woods, also up in New Hampshire. One of the letters came from New Hampshire. This comes from New Hampshire. The letter is entitled No Bucks for Rocks, and it talks about the collapse of the old man of the mountain, which I'll talk about briefly in a second. The old man of the mountain appeared on the New Hampshire State Quarter in 2000, and so this, this references the collapse in 2003. No Bucks for Rocks is the letter. No offense to the good people of New Hampshire. It's a good way to start. But do we really need three new commemorative coins to celebrate a hunk of rock that collapsed? <laughs> According to your article, the surcharges will go to assist the financing of a suitable memorial to the oldest and proudest member of the New Hampshire family, the old man of the mountain. I can just picture it, some half million dollar granite slab proclaiming, here used to stand. Who cares? If I lived in representative bradley's district i would immediately start a recall petition had he no other important issues to bring before congress if he gets his way and the coins are issued how about instead of another monument the surcharges went towards buying computers for new hampshire school children or hiring more teachers or providing low-income housing david cowan address also withheld so that's an interesting conclusion to come to i think there's a degree of truth to it the old man of the mountain for those who are unaware is a geologic formation in the shape of a human face it was sort of just a local curiosity up in north central New Hampshire, and people had taken pictures with it. There had been on postcards and stamps. Multiple presidents and a couple of famous writers had even visited. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about it. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant and Dwight Eisenhower had visited the site. 
And when I was very young, I, I was, I think, seven years old when it collapsed. But I had seen it on a couple of family trips up to New Hampshire. I had seen the old man in the mountains. So I was, you know, in 2003, I was a little bit sad when it uh, when it all fell down. We've talked about this before, Jeff, but in terms of themes for commemorative coins, oftentimes people want to commemorate local themes at the expense of national themes, right? You know, and, and, and it seems like a, re- a representative from New Hampshire had evidently introduced a bill proposing commemorative coins for the old man in the mountain, which interesting and historic, a geologic formation as it was, I don't know that that is really in the national interest to commemorate that. So anyway, it's a fun little, fun little piece of uh, recent numismatic history from up in, up in my neck of the woods, up in New England. So with the 2003 issue of Coin World, which by the way, uh, we usually explain why we pick the year for the different issues of Coin World that we review. We picked this one because our guest, Don Everhart, uh, his first sculpting credit with US Mint was in 2003. And we thought that that was as good a year as any. And I believe... Um, he became a U.S. Mint Artistic Infusion Program artist in that same year, though someone can fact check us on that. And so we thought that 2003 was a uh, was a fairly fitting year. So now that we've delved through the letters, tell me what's on your bookshelf this week. All right. So I decided to pick up on our, our interview last week with Michael O'Malley dealt with how currency is used to articulate power relationships and how, you know, racialized notions of value have always informed how Americans think about currency. So I decided to keep in a similar vein. So I read and and enjoyed Thomas Hockenhull's Symbols of Power, 10 Coins That Changed the World. What Hockenhull did is he took 10 coins, among them the pound, the yen, the mark, the dollar, the, the florin, a number of different very famous denominations of coins. And he explored pretty much every element of their history you would care to know about. He explores the entomology of their name. He explores how they developed over time, which rulers appeared on some of the stuff, how different governments valued the coins or devalued them in some cases. He uses these 10 denominations in their respective development histories to illustrate how every aspect of a coin from design to weight to name evolves from existing standards of value. Many names for denominations are derived from the names that different societies use to describe weight. The pound sterling referred to a pound of sterling silver initially, right? And a certain number of silver pennies composed a pound sterling, right? And so Hockenhull describes rulers and, and government's anxieties about the precious metal value of their coins, um, the efforts at debasement to cut costs or improve a nation's economic position. And he communicates that money is eminently political in its design, in its function, and how wealth and coins are distributed and used. Particularly interesting, he delves into some ancient history as well, which is really cool. And he talks about trade patterns in the Greek and Roman empires. It's an interesting book. And it's also it's fairly re- it's readable for one, and it's a like 150 or so pages, and the sections break down to you know 15 or so pages each. You can get through it relatively quickly. I enjoyed it. It's certainly not an exhaustive dive into the histories of each of these currencies. So if you're expecting to know everything there was to know about the mark or the florin or or the shekel or the dram, you're not going to get a full accounting of these coins. But that's really not the point. It serves as an effective primer for anyone interested in exploring the history of currency and its relationship to and function within society. So um, again, that's Thomas Hockenhull's Symbols of Power, 10 Coins That Changed the World. That's uh, that's what I've been reading. Awesome. Jeff. And you didn't know this, but that book was the basis of a feature that he wrote for Coin World four or five years ago around the time the book came out. So um, yeah. 
Fascinating. I don't remember the exact date, but we ran a three or four page story that was, you know, talks about that in even more narrow detail. Yeah, sure. Much briefer than the book, but I, I have the book. It's a good book. So uh, very yeah. good. Now that you got to share what you've learned, I'm going to put you to the test. Oh, boy. With All right, this let's, is let's a see how this goes. I, I don't usually test well, so we'll see. Novice level trivia question from the Coin World Trivia Game. And I wanted to know who operated a private Georgia mint for about three months. Do you have any idea what private mint would have been in Georgia? What are we talking about? The only reason that I know this is uh, a book that I recently bought and that I'm going to be reading for some future book recommendation segment about the history of the Dahlonega Mint actually made reference to this person. So that's really, this was not a piece of numismatic trivia that I had just picked up. I, I had to pursue a book on the Dahlonega Mint to actually to know this. The name is Templeton Reed. You are correct. You are correct. You got it. So let's stay in the 1800s with another fun question, this time about designs, because we're talking to a designer this week. And this is a novice level question as well. You will give me the answer in a week. The question is, what does the initial L stand for on some 1864 Indian sense? So think about that. It's, oh, it's cool. a design element, and we are, mm -hmm. we are talking to a designer. So design element, designer, it's, uh, it fits, right? What does the L stand for? 1864 Indian cents, some of them. So think about that. In the meantime, don't spend your time focused on the question. We want you to spend your time listening to our interview with Don Everhart. We had a great time. We hope you enjoy the fruits of that labor. Here's the interview. Chris and I are lucky today to be speaking with Don Everhart, who has worked for Private Mints and more recently and notably the United States Mint as a, an award-winning designer. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really uh, humbled and pleased to be here. So we want to talk about your long career in art and design. You've done coinage for a number of countries. You've worked at both public and private mints. Can you give us a little snapshot of that history? Yeah. Um, after I graduated from college, I kicked around a number of different jobs and things. And one day I was, I was working at a little ticket and label company in Northeast Philadelphia. And I decided to play hooky and take my student portfolio down to South Street and see if I get a one-man show, because I thought that was important at the time. So I went into this gallery, and I met Rita Devekis, who owned the gallery, and she said, we don't really have any slots for shows, but I work out in Delaware County at this place called the Franklin Mint, and we need someone like you to do pay stuff. You could interview. So that's what I did. I got the job. I worked for a year there just doing mechanicals and pay stuff, and then I tried out to be a sculptor. And I did three tryout pieces, which I got paid for, and they hired me on the third one. So I went from the advertising department into the sculpture department, and then I remained in, as a sculptor in residence for the next five years there until 1980 when I, I resigned because I really wanted to freelance. So for the next 24 years, I freelanced at home, working on uh, commissions that not only coins, but giftware and toys and all kinds of things that are, are sculptural. I even did a, an installation at Georgetown University. It had 24 bronzes of sports events. So, you know, I did a lot of different things. Every year, so I didn't even do any coins. But around 19, about 20, 2003 or so, the work started to slow down. I was doing a lot of giftware and they were sending it overseas. The work slowed down 
And I got a, a call from a friend of mine at the Franklin Mint and said, hey, um, I think, not the Franklin Mint, I'm sorry, the United <laughs> States Mint. And uh, they said, uh, you know, you should submit an application. So I did that. I applied. And long story short, 11 months later, they hired me. I started out there. I didn't really have a whole lot of design experience at the time. Most of my commissions were from, you know, clients that had designs and they'd give me the job and say, hey, sculpt this. But at the United States Mint, I finally got the time and experience in designing so that, you know, now I, I'm very, very much more confident in what I do and, um, you know, really enjoy it. In fact, I, last year, I think I only did a couple sculpts, but I, I did a lot of design work. I'm part of the AIP program at the United States Mint, which is the Artistic Infusion Program. And that is outside artists that they use for designs to supplement and augment their staff artists. I joined that about a year ago, and they've been keeping me busy this year. I did a, work on a lot of programs doing design work. In addition to other things, and the, my most recent piece is, of course, the uh, ANA Medal for 2020, which is the theme is Rachel Carson. Yeah, and that's uh, Pittsburgh, where the show will not actually be held now, but uh, it's, right. uh, it's a very, uh, very interesting piece nonetheless. When you're doing the design today, are you using the traditional method, or are you using computers? Do you no, blend the two? I stopped using pencils and paper back at the United States Mint. Actually, one day I was working on a design for the dollar coins. It was Abraham Lincoln, and I was working on tissue paper, tracing paper, and a pencil, and I just wasn't getting the likeness I wanted. It wasn't working, so I thought, what the heck? I'll try this Wacom, you know, this Photoshop thing. So I tried it and immediately caught on to it and loved it. In fact, the design I did got chosen. So from then on, uh, and I guess that was about 2000, I'm gonna say around 2007 or so. I, don't, I haven't drawn on paper since. <laughs> All the work I've done has been on a, a Wacom tablet which isn't really a tablet, it's a, it's a, a monitor, it's big, bigger than my regular monitor. And then I have Photoshop program and um, Illustrator that I use. I use Illustrator for lettering and I use Photoshop for everything else. You have done both though, is, it, is there a preference or yeah. what, what are the capabilities that this new technology allows that you weren't able to do in years past? Well, for instance, it's a real time saver. Like if I was gonna do a repeating border, I would have to draw it and redraw it and redraw it. I keep doing that and stepping it around the edge. Like if I did a border around the edge of a coin, an ornate border, I would have to like draw each panel. Now I can just divide the circumference of the circle by whatever number you know I, I think is appropriate and make the border or whatever my design is that size. And then I can step and repeat it. You know, I, I make it like one section of the arc of the border and then I just keep repeating it till I come around to the other side of the circle and hope that it doesn't overlap. <laughs> but it usually doesn't. I always have that worked out. It's a time saver. And uh, I, I don't know, you can do so many things with it. There's so many different brushes and uh, different uh, effects that you can do with Photoshop that, you know, it's really an amazing program. You know, I would still like to go back to drawing, like if I'm sitting out drawing from nature or something like that. But as far as designing for coins or, or other projects like that, you know, I much prefer the electronic version. Of all of the organizations you've worked for, whether public mints, private mints, freelancing for any number of different organizations, which one of those professional settings and which one of those organizations have you found affords you the greatest creative freedom? And which of those environments do you feel you've done your best work? 
Well, uh, two different things here. I think most creative freedom I have is when I'm working by myself, uh, you know, when I was freelancing. But as far as the other part, you know, the United States Mint, I, I would have to go with that. Like I say, I got the experience and I think that that really, people knew about me before then. But once I got the job at the Mint, it became a much higher profile. I think that, you know, the work was, well, for instance, when I was freelancing, every now and then I'd think, well, I have an important job. But when I was at the United States Mint, I felt that every job was important. Not that I put any less effort into it, but it's just a different mindset. It's when you, when you put the United States of America on a piece of sculpture or a design, it means something. I have to respect that and do the best I can with it. Sure. So do you have any guiding principles that you bring to your design work? And are there any motifs or sort of areas of visual themes that you really enjoy doing or you prefer to do? Well, I always like nature themes. I always loved animals. And I also love portraits. And, and this, this uh, Rachel Carson medal really afforded me the opportunity to, to do both of what I feel I do best, which, you know, is the portrait on one side with some animals. And then on the reverse is the, uh, the eagle and the, and the fish and a little bit of a landscape. So uh, I don't know if, if any, any of your listeners are familiar with the dinosaur series I did years ago. But, you know, again, nature. I love nature themes can also do architectural and, you know, cars and boats and planes, because I got a lot of experience at the Franklin Mint doing anything that came down the pike. So I felt that I was very well-rounded when I went freelance and had experience with, with just about any kind of sculpture. The architectural stuff takes longer, but I think the, um, the nature stuff and the portraits, it's more fun for me. So which of your designs are you most proud of? Which subjects have been the most challenging? Well, I just talked about that yesterday, as a matter of fact. I have a number of them, but the one that stands out and I think is probably one of the most important is the uh, profile portrait I did of President Obama for his presidential medal. And I was just looking at what I did on that design yesterday and thought, you know, I, I felt it really satisfied that I captured the man and that was borne out when he chose it. So that was definitely a high point in my career is doing that medal for him and actually getting to meet him in the Oval Office. Yeah, you, the, that role has, this role at the Mint has really uh, afforded you some great opportunities to witness history firsthand. Absolutely. I, I can't tell you how many congressional gold medals I've been to at the, the Capitol. And, you know, I've seen all kinds of people there, you know, presidents and sports figures and entertainment figures. I met a lot of uh, really cool people when I worked at the United States Mint. And I kind of miss that spotlight a little bit, you know, but um, I don't miss the commute. <laughs> and I don't miss getting up at 4.30 in the morning anymore either. But I always enjoyed the job at the, at the United States Mint. You know, it really uh, afforded me a bigger platform to, to, for more people to see my work, I felt. It's funny, though, you mentioned the Dinosaur Series because Chris just wrote about that a couple weeks ago. And I, and I, I, I tracked down the information from David Alexander's book for that. That is a, a marvelous little grouping, the, the first medal, and then when they had you do more the next year, such a neat, we think of coins and, and medals as generally round, but this was uh, such a, a rock figure shape thing. Uh, it's really cool. And I, I think the Obama for the his, history, but I think the dinosaur, just from an execution standpoint, is probably one of my favorites. Now you brought that up, you know, I did that back in the 90s. I think it was about 94 or something like that. Actually, what kicked it off was I was in a, on a plane on my way to London to a, a FEDEM conference, which is an international metal conference. And I was reading Jurassic Park. And it gave me the idea to do a design 
for, a, um, in this case, a Tyrannosaurus. But it was originally going to be a round metal. Uh, but when I got to the reverse, I thought, you know, it would be really cool. Put the fossil on the back. So, you know, with metals, you have an extra dimension. You have, you know, the, the three dimensions of, you know, up, down, and sideways. But you also have the dimension of time. So when you're looking at the obverse, you're looking at 66 million years ago. When you turn it over, you're looking at the present where the dinosaur skeleton is being carefully removed from the stone, you know, the fossil. So I like that idea. But when I got to, again, back, when I go back to the reverse, it just made sense to make it look like a rock, you know. So, so I made it in a regular die cut shape to accommodate that look because it would have kind of looked phony if it was round and it was a fossil. You know, but it gave it more authenticity, I felt, this way. That's why I did that. But one caveat I have to mention is now that I look at it, you know, all these years later, if I had to do it over again, I could do it better because, for one thing, we've learned a lot more about dinosaurs since I did that. And, you know, they didn't have feathers back then when I did the first one. Their posture was different. But they've learned so much more that I, I would redesign them and bring them up to date and also think that I'm a better sculptor now than what I was when I did that. Well, maybe, uh, maybe there could be some outlet for a re-release of the series. My father worked as a geologist for a number of years. And when I showed him, when I was working on that column that I talked to you and David Alexander for, you know, I, I was talking to my dad about it because I thought he would get a kick out of it. And he looked at the film and goes, oh, wow, that's really cool. So for people interested in paleontology or geology, it's, it's definitely a, a really a cool series. When I give talks and presentations on my work and everything, you know, people like it and all that. They're really interested. But when I get to the dinosaurs, that's when I hear audible <laughs> gas and things because people love dinosaurs. They can really relate to that. Right. So no, I mean, it's, a, it's always a, um, one of my favorite parts of the presentation because I know that they're interested at that point. The little kids always love going to the Natural History Museum to see the dinosaurs, right? So dinosaurs on metals uh, kind of kind of makes sense. Well, when, I, when I was a little kid, I had a whole collection of little plastic dinosaurs and you know, I'd play with them. And, and I never really lost my interest in paleontology. In fact, had I not become an artist, I think paleontology would have been my second choice. But, oh. you know, I don't know that I have the patience to, to chip away at those rocks <laughs> and get the little fossils out. You know, that's, that takes a lot of patience. Yeah, but as an artist, you have the patience to work on the design painstakingly. And if you, you know, if, you know so I, yeah. I think that would have been a great fit. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, that's another way of looking at it for sure. Um, <laughs> I could have I could have done it that way, yeah. So to move back into coinage, away from medals for a second, are there any themes that you'd like to see the United States commemorate on its coinage? And do we have a suitable variety of themes on our coinage currently, do you feel? Well, I think it's getting that way. I mean, with the, the recent Liberty Gold piece that had the, you know, it had an African-American woman on it, which I thought was a, just a beautiful design. And the eagle on the back of it, I think I sculpted that one. It's just a really nice piece. And I think that we have to address more of a diverse clientele, if you will, or subject matter, rather, subject matter. I think that's one thing that, you know, particularly right now, we need to address that. And I think that, you know, as we move further into the future, there's other things that are going to come into play, uh, you know, as far as the climate's concerned. And, you know, there's a whole lot of things that are shaping up right now that would be perfect subject material for coins and metals. How do you feel a design that addresses any of those topics, any of those very important contemporary issues, how do you feel that a design like that could manifest? I mean, I'd actually be curious to hear the insights into your creative process as well. If you were going to approach a topic like that, how would you start to think about it and what would you try to depict maybe for any number of issues? Yeah. 
Well, the first thing I do is I, I try to do research to get an idea because a lot of times going in, I have no idea what I'm going to do. So I start doing designs and I get to a point where I think, hey, I like that design. That looks pretty good. And I keep working on other ones. And then I go back to that one that I thought looked really good and it doesn't look that good. So it's a, it's a process that starts with gathering information, doing little quick sketches, thumbnails, and working it up until I get a theme that I can feel will work on both sides. Both sides of a coin will complement each other and that the design is right. And also another consideration is that you have to figure how this metal will strike, you know, where you have a lot of uh, uh, relief on one side. You don't want to have a lot of relief on the same side when you do the metal flip. There's two flips. There's a coin flip and a metal flip. The coin flip, as you guys know, is, you know, you turn the coin upside down to look at the reverse. But in a metal flip, you just turn it sideways and, and you get the uh, proper orientation. So you have to take specifications like that into consideration along with maximum heights of relief. Generally, the obverse has more relief on it than the reverse. Uh, this doesn't really matter as far as when the design is being done that much, but when I get to the sculpture, that's when I have to be really mindful that I stay within the specs. And it takes a while to master that. It, you tend to be working on a project and you're putting clay on your plaster and you're getting all this beautiful relief and you put more clay on. It's really looking good and then you realize you're like half an inch over the maximum of what your relief you're supposed to have, so you have to cut it all away. Uh, I don't make those mistakes anymore, but I did when I first started out, you know, and so I got a feel for, for you know, heights and things like that of relief. It took me a while to, to really get that under into my repertoire. Are there any subjects you've been unable to explore in your career so far that you'd like to? I mean, that, that offer fertile ground? Well, yeah, um, actually, I'm a cyclist. I already did a, a couple, well, one medal in particular called Sprint Finish that shows three cyclists coming to the line. But I think that there's a lot of work could be done on that, on subject of sports and things like that. And in my case, it's cycling. That would be one part of it. I'm also interested in the underwater world, you know, what lives under the, the ocean and in the rivers and things. I have fish tanks here at home and I'm pretty much obsessed with it. So, you know, again, getting back to natural themes for me. At least in a U.S. context, in the context of the work that you've done for the U.S. Mint, your designs have appeared on a, a huge variety of different types of coins and medals, whether state quarters, congressional gold medals, presidential dollars, westward journey nickels. Which of these types of material have you found offers the greatest creative possibility? And which of these well, sort of canvases were you most excited to work on? I, I have to say right away, I'd have to go with metals because you have more relief. You have a bigger palette to work, work in. And I think that the subject matter is not as restrictive in some cases. But I think also that the restrictions are, the, are, are things that you put on yourself. I was asked during an interview one time if, there, if we had a lot of freedom at the United States Mint to do, you know, different ideas. And I said, yeah, it's surprisingly a lot of freedom we had to do things. The CCAC, which is the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee, looks at all of our designs before, you know, we submit our designs to both uh, the CCAC and the CFA, which is the Commission of Fine Arts. And the CFA in particular, particular really wants to see innovative work. You know, they've seen all the St. Gaudens, they've seen all the Victor David Brenner's and everything like that. They want to see something that speaks to our time, which is what I'm interested in. Because, you know, if I start copying St. Gaudens or whatever, years from now, people are going to look back and say, well, you know, that's not very original. That's been done. So, you know, I think that we have to do work that is emblematic of the times we live in. 
because it tells a story, you know. What design elements and what design philosophy would distinguish a piece that does a good job capturing the spirit of our time as opposed to how maybe Victor David Brenner captured his? I mean, granted, it was Lincoln, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I think we use a lot different, more more different uh, perspectives and cropping for one thing. I mean, if you recall the uh, Jefferson point that I sculpted way back, the side view. I didn't design it. It was designed by Joe Fitzgerald. When Joe was talking to John Mercanti, when John Mercanti was my boss there, John said, no, no, you got to really zoom in on it. He did a design. It was zoomed in. He said, no, even more. So he really made the face, the whole, pretty much the whole palette, which I, I can't imagine, you know, back in, you know, hundred years ago, them doing perspectives like that or, or croppings like that. You know, we're looking for, for new ways to invigorate an old medium. And I think that's one way to do it. Uh, I think there's also other things that I'm, I'm maybe a little bit on the fence about, like colorization. Uh, I do like the idea of bimetallic coins. I think they look very handsome. Uh, a lot of the European countries have done them, and they, and they look beautiful. And I, and I hope that the United States Mint takes up that challenge, too. Does that answer your question? It does. No, it does. It's, your, your phrase there, reinvigorating an old medium, is, is interesting to me, because I think it's easy for people to see coins as being somewhat static. I mean people could almost be forgiven for thinking that because the Washington quarter, for example, the design was virtually unchanged, at least the major parts of the design for, you know, between 1932 and 1998. I mean, and so I think that for people to think of coins as being a dynamic space for an expression of societal value, I think that's a really helpful way for people to to look at coins. So you're reflecting on that and and ways to change the the format of the coins to reflect different themes is is very helpful. So no, that's that's absolutely a good answer. And that brings up an interesting point is back when medals first began, they were a means of telling the news of the day. I mean, they didn't have newspapers, they didn't have computers. So so people got information on their leaders and and policies through, through medals. That is long since gone. If we get back to something like that, where we start commenting on social ideas and themes and problems, it's almost getting back to that in a way. I mean, people still are not going to get rid of their computers and start reading coins for their news, but it (laughs) it kind of brings it full circle in that respect. So what topic today begs to receive that medallic treatment? Wow, that's a good one. That's a real good one. I don't want to get too political. I think the environment is definitely ripe for more um, exploration. You know, what we're doing to the, the environment and the usage of the Earth's resources, I think, we don't have another Earth. This is it. That, you know, this idea of going to Mars, is, it's a nice little fantasy, but I don't see how it's going to help us uh, as far as humans are concerned. Contemporary themes should deal with the news that we're reading about, you know, but in an artful way and not, not, not hitting you over the head with it, but, you know, maybe more hitting at it or I don't know. I don't, you know, I have to see something more specific to, to talk more specifically about it. But I think that that's a, a place, a good place to start. Who's the best medallic artist working right now besides you? Uh, Phoebe Hempel. Okay. I worked with her at the, at the United States Mint. She is a very, very good artist. She's a great artist. And I think she'll be remembered along with the, the, the Synox and the St. Gaudens. You know, she really does beautiful work. Who are some of your biggest influences in terms of your, your aesthetic style, the things you enjoy commemorating? What, who have you taken a lot of inspiration from? Well, I always liked Art Nouveau and Art Deco. I always liked that look. I mean, I didn't try to copy any specific artist or anything, 
but I tried to incorporate some of those design themes into my designs, not blatantly, but in the, in the back of my, my mind a lot. You know, specific people, I don't know that I can mention anybody other than like when I first started out at the Franklin Mint, I didn't really have a style or anything at that point. So there were 37 sculptors there, believe it or not, at one time. So I would go around and look at what everyone was doing. And I'd have to say that I got a little something from each one of those people, you know, from Gilroy Roberts, who I worked with briefly, you know, to Jim Farrell, uh, you know, to practically everyone on the staff, I learned a little bit from. So it's hard for me to pinpoint, you know, a, an individual or a couple individuals, but it's more or less, it's kind of like fermented in me for, for all these years. And it, it just comes out naturally. So what's the future of medallic art? I mean, I, I can recall back in the 60s, not that I was alive then, but, I, but from what I've read, that was just the heyday. The Franklin Mint was really active yeah. in the 70s. You were there in, the, in that uh, time frame. Today, the items that are commemorated, or there are lots of medals being issued, but nowhere near the output of 40 years ago. What's the future look like for medallic art? You're involved in FIDAM, I think. Well, and that's where I was going to go, because if you look at artists that are working, you know, within FIDAM, there are some really innovative people there that I just really admire. I, I like what they're doing with the, um, with the medallic medium. I wouldn't say that it's going to come from a, an institution like the United States Mint or, or a private mint or anything like that. I think it's, it's more of a grassroots thing. When you go to these freedom conferences, it's like a mingling of all these artists. And, and it's again, it's, it's like almost the way it was for me at the United States or at the Franklin Mint where I got influenced by all these people. I've been to a couple of these freedom uh, exhibitions and I've seen some of the beautiful medals that have been exhibited. And it's, it's influenced me as far as getting ideas and how to treat the, the medium that I'm working with. I, I know a lot of people aren't familiar with metals or, or with freedom or anything like that, but I, I think the future of, of medallic art is going to come from the private sector. Yeah, I, I can remember, uh, I've only been to one freedom, but that was 2007 in Colorado Springs. As you know, it is um, it's fascinating to, to get to see all this work from around the globe and see what is meaningful to these folks and how they're executing it all over. Well, it's good to see how they view things that are happening in our country. You know, it gives us a different perspective. I think we as Americans sometimes have a, you know, um, blinders on when it comes to other views. And I think that, that the bringing together of, of different people from different countries brings all the ideas and, and new uh, techniques and new handling of the medium. It all meshes together. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good for people to get their, your ideas from a lot of different sources. When I was in college, I had this quote on my wall from Carlisle, and it said, he is most original that chooses from the most sources, something to that effect. Most original that, that borrows from as many different sources. It's, that's paraphrasing it. But yeah, we all are influenced by what we see. And you know, I don't know that anybody is completely unique because you know, we're all we all are affected by our experiences in life, you know, whether they're good or bad. And we, you know, we try to relate how we felt through the medium that we choose, in this case, you know, metals and coins. You mentioned that you feel that the, the future of metallic art is in the private sector. And I'm curious, for all of your designs that have appeared on coins, do you feel that the public pays enough attention to metallic art? And if you wanted the collector community and the public at large who consume and use coins every day or maybe not every day recently because of uh, lockdowns and stuff, but often use coins. 
what would you like people to understand about the value of medallic art as sort of a, an expression of public value? And how would you encourage people to think about it in a more sort well, of sophisticated way? That's a tough one because I, I don't think people are really tuned into medallic art right now. Sure. So how to get them interested, you know, that's something that um, other mints have been dealing with for years and I'm not sure they've figured it out. So I'm not quite sure I can figure that out either. But again, I, I go back to uh, contemporary ideas, something that you can relate to. The average person sees a metal that was done in the 1700s and they're like, yeah, whatever. But if they see something that was done, you know, contemporary and is striking and has a, you know, a, a unique perspective and cropping on it, it's going to catch their eye. And if the subject matter relates to them and what's happening in the world, I think that, that that's how you, you get to people like that. But how you do it um, logistically, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. We're going to let that uncertainty be the last word. We thank you so much for taking a little bit of time today to walk us through your career and your thought processes. Can't thank you enough. We love getting to talk to the people that do the work that matters in making our coinage and speaking for what matters to America. Well, I thank you for having me. I really was excited when Chris told me that they were considering having me for the podcast. And I really look forward to it. So I'm glad we finally got a chance to get together and do this. Oh, absolutely. No, we were, we were, we're really thrilled about it too. So again, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. We hope that you enjoyed our interview with Don Everhart. We had a lot of fun talking to him about his experience designing and sculpting tons of material for a number of different mints. So I want to take this moment to end the podcast to once again ask if you would consider continuing to listen every week and subscribing. It's the best way to support the show, and it means a great deal to us. Absolutely. And until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for the segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the CoinWorld email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes, choose your topics, and the high-quality content you expect from CoinWorld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up, and thanks for listening to the show.